Hello, friends. Uh, my name is Steve, and welcome to the Friday Conversation, episode 93, I think. I always get my numbers mixed up. Yes, 93. So today we will still be doing the normal kind of see where the conversation takes us, but we'll be focusing on all things characters. So that's kind of the theme for today, but we'll see what, what happens. So we'll start off with introductions. Jose, will you start us off, please, sir? Yeah, hi, I'm Jose. I run the uh, Jose's Amazing Worlds channel on YouTube, and generally I'm also lurking around the page chewing forums, and as usual, Steve and everyone else, thank you very much for having me here. We don't mean to contribute to your anti-social, anti uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> glad you made it. <laughs> and uh, Susanna. Hello, uh, my name is Susan Imaginario. I write weird mythological fantasy, and I also run a YouTube channel where I ramble about stories and board games, movies, things like that. Awesome. And Paramita. Hello, uh, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Paramita. Uh, I'm a member of the Page Doing Forum. I like to read books in a variety of genres, and you can frequently find me rambling about them on the forum. Yeah, glad you could make it. I don't want to be the only reader here, so thanks for helping me out. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Carl. Hi, my name is Carl D. Albert. I am an author, and I work in the entertainment industry, and a happy member of the Page Chewing Forum. And unlike Steve, I'm absolutely here to corrupt everyone and make everyone as antisocial as possible. So it's actually a great pleasure of mine. Uh, and I also want to highlight something that I don't know if it's ever come up in this podcast, but Paramita talks very casually about that, you know, she reads a variety of books, but like she's the fastest reader I've ever met in my life. It is mm -hmm. remarkable. Yep. The things like it, you can't see it here, chat, but like Jose and Susanna both reacted. We're like, yes, like it's, it is insane. She's like breaking her own records constantly. It's, it is truly remarkable to superpower. Teach us your ways, Parmita. How do you do it? What? <laughs> do you really want to? What's re remarkable to me is like, you're not just fast, but you, like you absorb it and like you actually like remember it. You know, I could try to, read that quickly but so much would just like wash over my brain um especially with denser materials you know denser stories um so i guess if everyone's ready we can jump right into things yeah go for it cool so today we're talking about characters and i wanted to open up the discussion talking about how a lot of times you know when people are talking about stories whether it be books tv shows movies what have you comic books that there's a lot of debate around, you know, character likability and, you know, the idea of like, oh, do, you, do your protagonists need to be likable? You know, do they need to be relatable? You know, what makes a character compelling? And so I just wanted to go around and ask everyone, you know, mm. what you personally find yourself attracted to as a reader and as a writer, potentially, you know, in terms of characters, whether you think uh, an element of likability is important or even necessary, or, you know, whether it is sort of a, a relatability, a mystique, what compels you? And I guess I'll start, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it on you, Steve. <laughs> I knew. I'm going to throw it on you first. You're mixing things up. I knew that was coming. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> for me, whenever a character is too too perfect, I, I have no interest in them. They have to have some kind of dirt on them. They have to have something that isn't... They have to have some kind of flaw that makes them relatable. <laughs> so it's bad. I need, I need something to, to make them human, to make them like someone I know, because no one's perfect, and we all do dumb things from time to time. So I need someone that that uh, I know is going to struggle with something, legitimately struggle. That um, I need I need some something to... I need some contrast with that. I don't, I don't need it all to be good or bad. I need something, even bad characters. I need something redeemable about them, at least a little bit, or at least they need to do really terrible things that makes them irredeemable. That's a whole nother conversation, but. <laughs> all right. Uh, Jose, how about you? Um, I, I, I don't have an answer. I don't know. I <laughs> Valid. No, no, it's just like, because I understand where Steve is coming from, um, but because I grew up with very traditional Dungeons and Dragons fantasy, where the characters are very clear cut, hmm. and you know they're no flaw. The heroes are heroic, and you know they are faithful and loyal and all that kind of stuff. So I don't I don't mind my characters being so called perfect. Um, I think maybe what is more important to me, I think, and we had some kind of conversation going in the forums before today is motivations if i understand what motivates a character then to me that's a well-written character even if they are heroic and perfect if i understand why they're doing what they do and what drives them even if they are flawed even if they are evil even if they are whatever it is if i know why they do things i'm invested in the character if i don't understand why they do things that's when i disconnect and i start to not care about them very cool. How about you, Susanna? Uh, I like conflicted characters. Um, and yes, they have to be flawed. If they are too perfect, too good, it's just... I don't find them realistic. Again, they have to be human. But yeah, they, they have to have the inner conflict uh, of some sort. Um, cognitive dissonance is something that I explore a lot. Um, <laughs> My <laughs> just a little bit <laughs> just a little bit yeah you've read it so you know everyone is a bit um, you know, strange but yeah they, they need to have layers you can't even when you understand the motivation it's um, you need to understand the context for that motivation you know why are they motivated to do the thing you know there there's layers a good character needs to have many layers and some of them contradict each other uh, and it's about how they go through the story dealing with that uh, with that in, inner conflict hmm. those are my favorite how about you Paramita um, so as a reader I think uh, likability is helpful in terms of rooting for the character and reprehensibility is typically unhelpful, but it depends on the execution. So for example, one of the most reprehensible characters that I have read in fiction, and it was first person, so it was uh, horrifying. Uh, I've reread the book three times, and every time I, ha I feel like taking a shower is uh, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov, which is... Uh, 
we are in the mind of a, a preferential offender uh, who uh, abuses a child and it is from the point of view of this person and there is no question of i mean the question of, from the premise itself the question of liking this character does not arise but what is masterfully crafted is the psychological profile of this offender from beginning to finish and what is shown is to some extent that this is not somebody who is evil incarnate for example uh, in this sort of unfathomable way like let's say the judge from blood meridian who is quite uh, unfathomable evil here humbert because we are in his head and because we see how he thinks we see that there are moments there are cracks where he knows what he is doing is wrong but he has to still go on doing it and similarly from at the other spectrum uh, i'm trying to think of uh, something from general fiction but i'll go with uh, someone who is very dear to me is frodo and uh, from the lord of the rings and frodo is uh, usually hailed as uh, you know in the good versus evil he is good but to me what i find is and again lord of the rings is something very dear to me and i have uh, read it uh, many times i find that this is a person who's trying to do his best under the given circumstances uh, he cares about the shire he cares about his people and then gradually he goes on to care about the world as it opens up to him and he bears this burden but uh, but at a pivotal moment he he does succumb to temptation and he is he is not 100% perfect so i think there are nuances to be added even to the most likable or to the most reprehensible characters ultimately it comes down to the writer's skill in how much they can make us uh, engage with uh, the particular personality it comes down to how much they explore the psyche for me i think me. you all have spoken to things that that really speak to me um i i definitely like jose i i can get on board with more heroic characters you know i grew up reading a lot of superhero comics um you know i'm a, i'm a superman defender i i love superman i think he's often written poorly but i you know i'm a fan you know i i grew up with lord of the rings uh harry potter even you know i was very much of the generation that grew up with harry potter and uh, the main characters in that are very kind of classically heroic characters but um at the same time it, I find that I'm drawn to I I like to have a diverse cast in terms of personalities and like motivations and different things like that, you know, where I I find if all the characters are reprehensible or all the characters are really goody two shoes except for maybe, you know, like the one villain or whatever, um because usually there's at least one bad guy, uh that I I struggle with it a lot more if then or or I'm usually not as immediately hooked or intrigued uh than at, if there are a, a wide range of personalities or a wide range of kind of moral compasses and philosophies I do find myself differentiating a bit from you Jose in that I like sometimes when I don't quite understand where a character's coming from I mean I think I generally am with you that I like to understand the motivation but in very specific instances I think there are times where I I like a character being a little unpredictable to me. And I I do think it would be a problem if that was true with every character in a story. Um I I think that would be a problem even if it was like the majority of characters in a story. Uh but sometimes the mystique is definitely something that I gravitate to. 
Uh, that what I would really struggle with is certainly if a character acts one way consistently and there's nothing to motivate a sudden change in behavior, but then they suddenly change their behavior. That would annoy me quite a lot. Um, but beyond that, I definitely think I look for just a, kind of a hook, like something into a character, something whether it is an element of likability or, you know, a really interesting flaw, clear, like internal conflict I eat up. I love, you know, I'm someone who really likes navel gazing, whether it be about, you know, just talking about how a character views the world and asking questions about how the world functions or just like their own kind of internal angst. You know, I'm really into like kind of gothic literature and, um, just anything that really kind of gets into a character's head is something that I really enjoy. And so for me, it, it, there, there's a wide range, I guess, of uh, what attracts me to characters. And I think that's why, you know, th this was the first question I thought of and it was something that I wanted to talk about because I'm never sure about, you know, how I personally feel in any given situation. You know, like we're reading um, The Darkness That Comes Before. And one, the, I found several of the characters more likable than I expected to. I thought everyone was, I was just going to hate from the get-go. Now, I do expect them to probably do things that will make me not be so happy with them in the future. But I, I certainly was surprised by that. Same thing with uh, First Law when I read it years ago was I was like, I was shocked by how likable some of the characters were. And they admittedly um, don't all end up in the most uh, likable, shall we say, of places, but... You know, some of them, like Jazal is a character who I hold very near and dear to my heart. He's actually my favorite of the trilogy, and I don't think people talk about him that much. You know, a lot of people talk about Logan Ninefingers or Glockta. Glockta, I think, is a really big one that people like to point to, who's, who is a wonderfully written character. I mean, the whole cast is wonderful. But Jazal, I'll admit it's a trope I really like. But, you know, he starts out as this wastrel, horribly unlikable, you know, little rich aristocrat, uh, kind of cowardly too. But you watch him develop, you know, he goes through horrible events and you see like, oh, there's actually like goodness and he's trying to improve. And that's something that really uh, speaks to me is that sort of growth or where a character goes somewhere you don't necessarily expect or immediately see, you know, the Jamie Lannister story. So, Jose, it looked like you wanted to say something. <laughs> you no, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, you just let me straight into it. And I don't know to what degree. Uh, when we talk about characters, you can just think about, you can separate the actual character, so whoever you choose from, like Logan Ninefingers, the barbarian from the north, or Jamie Lannister, the rich young knight, how much can you separate, so the, the, the conception of the character and then the journey they go on. And like for me, Jamie Lannister, like I, when I was reading uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, it's a character that I positively disliked and I found despicable. And then four books later, I'm rooting for the guy. And it's like, wow, what, what an amazing journey I've gone with this character where I've gone from disliking and positively despising him to be to rooting for him. And at, like, I don't know to what degree the character journey makes us appreciate that character outside of just the idea, the notion or the concept of the character. Um, and just because to, to finish off, for instance, in this world, there are a lot of fantastic and wonderful characters, but they don't go on journeys. They, they just are. They always are sort of fairly immovable, but they're all brilliantly written. And, and th th those are concepts and there's no journey and they are brilliant. But in Game of Thrones, maybe in the first law, 
it's the journey I think that makes the character more than the actual conception of it. I don't know what everyone else thinks. They are two different types. I of definitely agree with that. It, it, yes, but just they are different types of characters for different types of stories. Um, <clears throat> Jamie, yes, we see his journey and we like him more because we understand him better. And in the beginning, he's just this horrible man that pushes an eight-year-old out of the window and having an affair with his sister, you know, it doesn't get any worse than that. And he killed the king, so it's, you know, <clears throat> you are supposed to hate him. And then as you understand him better, and of course, as you go through his trials um, and suffering, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great character. In this world, the characters don't need to evolve. They are there for the world not uh, on any journey of themselves that they, they, they are part of the world they are um, archetypes almost and, um, and the world bobs around them and or you know it it's it's different they, they are not there to evolve they are just there to make sense of things i think it speaks to that terry pratchett was writing satire right you know, mm -hmm. I, I think in a lot of satire, the characters embody concepts. I mean, uh, Jose, I, I saw you maybe disagreeing there, so feel free to, you know, uh, speak against it or however, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, I don't know if I disagree. I, I just don't know if Terry Pratchett was writing satire. I think he was, he wrote about very many real-world issues through the voices of these quirky characters in this Satire. bonkers world but okay maybe just my lack of understanding of the terminology sorry my excuse my dumbness as one of my students <laughs> said to me this morning <laughs> it's but yeah i mean getting back to what Susanna was saying I, I definitely think it's you know different characters for different stories and talking about jamie lannister a little bit more he's my favorite character in a song of ice and fire he was someone who i just I, I, I mean, I hated him and I loved his journey and everything. And I was that much madder when, you know, the TV show, I thought completely ruined it um, at the end there. But uh, he, it wasn't just that like, we came to understand him better, but it was specifically through his relationship with Brienne of Tarth that I thought really opened my eyes to who he was and the depths of his character and also where he could go. And you know, it, it it was seeing this sort of unique, unexpected relationship that really made me fall in love with his character and hers, to be honest. Um, kind of seeing the way this, they played off each other and the ways they forced each other to change and, and change their points of view and how, it, you know, it helped us understand that Jamie is someone who used to hold these really high ideals and some part of him still wants to believe you know although he really is fighting it that like a knight can be you know very chivalrous a knight can you know be a protector of the innocent but he's convinced you know all, oh all these oaths are contradictory you know no one will ever respect you you know for trying to do the right thing you know he did this incredibly heroic act um breaking his oath to kill the mad king and he was villainized for it and I think it just is really interesting, sort of the 
to see this character unravel and, you know, to see him lose his hand, right? I mean, we're just throwing out Game of Thrones spoilers left and right here, but um, th that this character who has defined himself, I mean, that's the thing I always go crazy for is when a character is defined by one thing or like primarily defined by one thing and then they lose that thing. You know, for him, it's his hand, right? He's a sword fighter. He's, he's one of maybe the best sword fighter in Westeros. And suddenly he can't do that anymore. And he has to not only struggle to relearn how to fight with his sword, but uh, he has to completely take a step back and be like, well, who am I if I'm not this badass warrior? You know, who am I if I'm not with Cersei? Who am I really deep down? And I think that's something that is just so compelling. But, but it's not more because he's going through a very traditional redemption arc. And, and the reason why we like him is, is because, you know, these are, you know, like most of Western histories have been, you know, you go back to the classics and I mean the Greek and the Romans, you know, Virgil and all that stuff, all the stuff comes from there. And Jamie is a classic redemption arc. And, and that's why we like him. It's a bit like Han, Han Solo in Star Wars. He, he is a rogue, he's a villain, but at the end of A New Hope, he comes to you know, save the day and help the good guys because he finds it in himself to, to be that hero and they're, they're kind of, in a way, they're sort of similar journeys to, to the character and I don't know whether Jamie's likability is because of that and if he had gone the other way, if he had started good and ended bad, we would have liked him as much as perhaps I, we did. I'm going to have to disagree a little bit with that, sorry Jose. Uh, I, I don't think Jamie is a good example of a redemption arc. Um, he, he is a villain in the beginning, but only from the perspective of everyone else. He doesn't see himself as a villain. He doesn't feel regret for killing the king. He, he had no problems pushing Bran. I mean, he is, is, is not at the beginning. He, he almost doesn't have a conscience. So he, it's, uh, I think it's more a journey of self-discovery, of awareness because um, when he starts seeing himself through the eyes of others when, when he loses his hand and he really has to look see what else he is you know, what, what else he has to offer what kind of man he is because before he was just a sword you know, he was a tool um, his father used him the king used him, the sister used him he, he was just a tool and then he stopped being a tool and he had to figure it out who he was so he wasn't trying to redeem himself Eventually, yes, because he realizes you know, the harm or the potential uh, harm, especially towards Bran. I don't think he was ever sorry of killing the king, for example. But um, yeah, it's self-awareness, self journey of self-discovery. And then hopefully, well, we never know, the books are not finished, but uh, <laughs> uh, I hope he, he comes to, he finds peace within himself with what he did, I suppose. That's so I want to give uh, Parmita and Steve a chance to chime in again in a sec, but I do want to both agree and disagree with both of you, Jose and Susanna, okay. real quick. That Another I do think Jamie is sort of in... I, I, I do think he's more likable because we see him growing and changing positively and having that, those sort of redemptive... Uh, moments you know like when he goes back to save Brienne in the bear pit like that's 
the moment where I was like, one, I was like, I want them to kiss. And two, I was like, I, I love Jamie Lannister. I'm here for this. Like, it's just such a ridiculous, like, it's, it's such a stupid, heroic thing to do um, from this character who we have seen as like being very antagonistic. Um, but at the same time, like in the books, at least, uh, I mean, and I'm only thinking about this because I reread them recently. He doesn't still feel bad about pushing Bran out the window. And, you know, as of Feast for Crows, he talks about, like, shooting babies in a trebuchet, you know? And that's where I push back against, like, the idea that he has this classic mm -hmm. redemption story, too, is where, like, he hasn't, like, really done too many overtly heroic things. I mean, he's trying in some ways to create peace. He's like, let's end this war. It's horrible. You know, it, it's just been terrible for everyone. But he's trying to end it by threatening to shoot babies with a trebuchet. And I, I think it's that sort of middle ground, like he's really struggling in a way I think you don't see a lot of characters struggling with the redemption arcs. You know, another pop culture example that a lot of people talk about is Zuko and in Avatar The Last Airbender. And that, that's a character that I, I like a lot, but you know, he only has one real moment of temptation. He doesn't constantly, you know, and he fails, um, but once he's kind of turned good, he's turned good. And he doesn't really have that continuous moral struggle of struggling with who he is as a person and sort of the moral choices he has to make, which I guess also speaks, you know, I mean, one's a children's show and one is this like very dark adult epic fantasy. Um, going off of that, and uh, Parmeet and Steve, if you have any thoughts about Jamie Lannister in general, I'd love to hear them. But I'm also curious, uh, particularly from you, Steve, since you love your, your darker, you know, very dark gray and black characters, you know, you, what is it that draws you to them besides, like you, you talked, you know, some inner conflict, some doubt, you know, but is it, you know, also like so often villains get to have, you know, people say villains have more fun, right? Mm -hmm. Often they're more proactive than the heroes. Are, are any of these things, you know, uh, aspects to kind of the darker characters that stand out to you? Is it, you know, do you think there's something sort of in a weird, dark human, you know, enjoyment out of like seeing someone just like let loose, you know, what, what is it that speaks to you about these darker characters? Well, first I want to, I know Parmita has thoughts on Song of Ice and Fire, but um, I just want to say really quickly that I, I'm, I wish Brienne and Jamie didn't have a romance. I, I don't need them to have a romance. I'd, I'd rather them be friends. I, I think when things become romantic, it just seems like, do we really need them to be romantic? Like, do we really need that to, I don't know. I, that's just me though. But I could not yeah. disagree more on that, but keep going. Okay. I just think, uh, I think it, it would be a much more interesting relationship and friendship if they there was no romance involved if they just had a mutual respect and they just live their lives and and just didn't need that extra element that didn't i don't know, I, I don't think it needed that to make that friendship interesting i think it was interesting in and of itself and the journey they had together i don't think they needed a romance to kind of like bring them together but we can we can we can discuss that after but as far as the <laughs> as far as the characters go, I think um, for me anyway, I think in in darker fiction, I, I think what draws me to these characters is that I want to see how they how they come out the other side. I, I want to see their journey and 
because they, we know that they're going to face some horrible odds. They're going to go through some horrible things. And I like seeing how they come out the other side and, and how they're able to persevere or how they fail on their way to trying to do, trying to reach their goals, whatever those goals may be. So I, I, I like to see the journey and I like to see where they end up at the end and, and whether or not they're able to achieve their goals or they fail horribly or, um, or, you know, I think that inspires some of us and not everyone's into this kind of thing, but I think it, it inspires us to, to see someone else, even whether it's in fiction or not, how someone can overcome these insurmountable odds and somehow find a way and somehow pick themselves up and, and survive, I guess, even just survive, not even achieve their goals, just live, live through it. But yeah, that's just me. Parmita, how about you? Speaking to Jamie Lannister, Song of Ice and Fire, or just darker characters in general? Um, I, it depends on the execution regarding darker characters. First, I'll, uh, I'm going to say I agree with Steve, actually, that uh, I find that uh, the journey of uh, Brienne and Jamie, at least uh, what I've read in the books, because I have not seen the show, um, I find them more interesting as colleagues, as platonic friends. It is not an issue if they have a romance, but I too think that uh, the importance of platonic friendships in fiction, especially between uh, opposite sexes, is not explored that much, especially in uh, these settings. And it would be a nice thing, I, I think, to recognize each other as colleagues and as people just from that, I would like that a lot more. Uh, coming back to the question of darker characters, so um, how do I phrase this? So as a reader, I usually read for two reasons. One is enjoyment and one is enrichment. And maybe sometimes if I'm lucky, then both. But uh, from the enjoyment point of view, I generally don't find anything in very dark fiction. Um, nihilism is... Um, I think it's, it's a bit boring to me, but also it's not something I ideologically align with at all. So uh, it's not something that I get enjoyment of, out of. As far as enrichment goes, yes, if it, it depends on the execution. But if it is relentless bleakness, if it is, uh, you know, every character getting tortured, whether psychologically or physically, sometimes uh, there is sexual assault involved. Then one of the things that I fear, which I fear while watching the real world news also, it happens to me when I watch real world news, is I get desensitized after a point. After a point, I'm not taking, I'm not processing things. And that scares me a lot personally as a human being that I don't want to get desensitized. I don't want to lose that feeling of being able to connect to somebody else's pain, even if it's in, in, in a very fictional or in a virtual level. And so when I start to get desensitized, I think that for me, the enrichment factor, the possibility of enrichment in fiction is gone. And at that point, I generally stop reading uh, the darker the darker series. So uh, TLDR is, I, it is not something I gravitate to unless there is some interesting psychological profiling going on or again, as some fellow readers who know what I can handle, they tell me that, uh, Paramita, maybe you should give this a try. Uh, you will find something interesting without getting, you know, overwhelmed by uh, graphic violence. Something for that example. occurred to me as you were talking 
about, you know, particularly in relationship to getting desensitized and um, dealing with enrichment to and darker fiction and, and exactly what that means, right? Um, is I think I find oftentimes that when I am reading from a really, uh, shall we say, morally corrupt character's perspective, that a thing that makes me enjoy it more is when I feel like it helps me have a different viewpoint of the world, I guess, and maybe even open my heart a bit more in a way, like to see the humanity and the goodness in even people that I might think are overall morally bankrupt or, you know, it, it, it's something where it challenges, I guess, my, my point of view in a way that like Jamie Lannister, you know, to get back to him, where like certainly I think the incestuous little kid pushing, you know, abusive knight character uh, is something that like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily expect to find the nuggets of goodness and to really see and understand it's that understanding right it's understanding where they're coming from you know getting back to jose at the very beginning the motivation right and like understanding the damage that was done to them and why they view the world they do you know and i and i actually find sometimes not always but sometimes seeing the world through the eyes of these darker characters actually helps me maybe be a bit more compassionate or be more a bit uh, empathetic. Now, I don't want to sidetrack uh, too much about, you know, should they or should they not get together, Jamie, Brian, that sort of thing, because that's not what this is about. But I do think something that's interesting, that no one has, as we've been discussing their relationship, no one has uh, pushed back against or, or said anything contrary to, is the idea that their relationship isn't important at all, whether it's platonic or romantic, right? That that relationship is really a core part of the story, right? And is important to bring out both of their characters, right? And to develop both of their characters and to show us, you know, the deeper facets of who they are and to challenge them. And that it really is important, I think, relationships in general in fiction to showing us, you know, who a character is and making them more compelling because I think, you know, we go through life and so often, you know, our lives are defined by our relationships, you know, whether they be with someone we know in person, you know, our boss, you know, a lover, a family member, friends, uh, a rival, you know, anything. It, it's so often our relationships are really important to who we are. And so I'm curious, you know, to go off of that. How do you guys feel about uh, relationships in fiction, you know, and what are some really well done ones you've seen, platonic, romantic, what have you. And, you know, if you're a writer, how do you try to develop relationships? Well, that depends on the character and to kind of try and keep it on the subject. I often get annoyed when, um, <clears throat> when two characters fall in love and you just, how? Why? I, I know love is blind and things happen, but... Uh, Sometimes they are so incompatible. It would never happen in a million years. And um, entire stories built on that. And it really, really uh, annoys me. It's one of my pet peeves. Uh, if you're going to build a relationship, romantic, friendship or not, uh, it can't just be because, oh, I like this character. I also like this character. It wouldn't be great if they got together. Um, and it, it, it doesn't work. So when, when you build a character in it's important to take into consideration 
the characters that uh, they might like, might like them, and why, and in what circumstances, etc. So, but yeah, relationships is important. I mean, you're not going to have a plot or much of a story with just one character. They exist, and some of them are really great. But if you're going to, one of the best and easiest ways to develop a character is through another character's eyes or. Uh, having them interacting with another character. So, yeah, they are crucial, of course. I'm going to be absolutely categorical here and stop sitting on the fence. <laughs> and basically, so for my personal, like this is me personally thinking, believing firmly 100%, men and women can't have platonic relationships. And that's all down to the man's fault. Like we, we just see mating potential this is deep ingrained biological stuff and every woman straight away goes into some sort of potential mateability ranking so i don't believe in that i don't, I don't think that you know that's possible and generally speaking i don't think men write believable platonic relationships romance um i've i've, I've seen some awful like i think to some of that what you said in the Gunpowder Mage trilogy by Brian McClellan, it's like you said, I've got this young female character here, I've got this young male character here, so they must have a relationship. And the problem is, as you read in the trilogy, you go like, they're going to get together, aren't they? They're going to get together. But not because the characters develop a bond in a way that leads them naturally there. It's because you can almost feel the author going, I must have a romantic relationship in my story. Ah, it's going to be these two characters because they are the only two that could possibly fit, you know, and tick that box. Um, so, so there's that. Those, those are like my strong opinions. And then back to the sort of the, the Jamie and Brienne stuff is that, is that the, the good thing about that relationship between them is that in a way, it is Brienne that brings about the change in Jamie. It, uh, it sort of, she's the reason why. So he remembers what being a knight is about, so to speak. And when you know, when you said that he is stupidly and idiotically jumps into the bear pit, it's because of this journey that they've gone through together. You know, where she's const constantly, you know, badgering him about being a knight and you know all these chivalric values that he sort of remembers what he once believed, and he sort of guess that youthful innocence so to speak back and i think that's important and and that relationship didn't need to be romantic but it was really important for jamie i think brienne is is is, is the catalyst in in jamie's journey in a game of thrones um but but yeah i yeah generally speaking male writers cannot write decent romance at all and top of the pile of shit romance written awful relationships Robert Jordan Wheel of Time it is god awful the reaction is hilarious <laughs> I, I, yeah I, I was muted because I was laughing so much I can't stop laughing uh, I'm not wrong though. I, I cannot hear anyone contradicting me. So, 
No, I agree. It's the worst part of that series. Uh, I mean, that series has a number of notable flaws, but the romantic relationships are just atrocious. Uh, they're just so poorly written. It's some of the couples are like all right once they're couples, but the the actual journey there is just like it's so unbelievable and uh, yeah. There's one the, the good one... relationship. That is one really good relationship. Um, Matt and uh, Birgitte. As as a romantic relationship? No, no because it's not a romance. No. I, okay. I love okay. them okay. together. Right. They get on so well. They're proper friends. Yeah. Yes, he fantasizes about her because, like Jose said, men, you know, platonic doesn't mean that you don't think about it. You know, but it's also it's about the friendship. You know, you're not gonna you're gonna sacrifice a friendship just for a fantasy. I know that can't you keep both separate? I mean, their relationship is, I, it's, it's one of my favorites um, in, in several books. I really like them. They are great. I, I definitely find, it's so weird how some of the little relationships in that series are so much better than like some of the really major driving ones. You know, like I've never bought Rand, Matt and Perrin's friendship. That was something that immediately from book one, I was like, why are these guys friends? Like, it's a I, small village, I have, there's no one else. Right. But it's supposed to be like important to the story and they're like tied together by Taviran fate stuff. And I, I just, I don't know. Like I, as someone who certainly has had a number of um, friendships that have been really important to me, I was like, I don't, I don't buy it. Like any of the friendships here you know, male, female, whatever, it's, yeah, that, that, there's a lot I really like about The Wheel of Time, but not all of the relationships are the, uh, so it depends, like, Rand and Moraine's relationship, I think, is one that's really interesting to see develop, where she is this teacher, but she also tries to manipulate him, and then he pushes back, and is, you know, fighting his destiny, and the way that they kind of gradually come to accept one another more, I thought was an interesting journey and was one of the more interesting journeys for me personally uh, as a reader. But Steve, how about you talking about relationships in fiction? Well, I, I think Susanna made a good point about developing a character through another character. I think that's, I, I never really put that together until <laughs> you said it, but it makes total sense. This is why I'm a reader and not a writer. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a great way to introduce us and because when we, when we are in that character's head, we're seeing the world through their eyes and we may not necessarily see how everyone else sees them. So we, we get a, like a twisted view or a, a war. I don't say warped view, but a different view of reality through that character. So when you see it through someone else, you get a, a not only a, a better idea of that character that they're looking at, that we're learning more about through them, but also the world and how that world, the world views that character that we've, gotten to know through their eyes I don't know if that makes any sense but yeah but I think Jose made some good point I know he's a big fan of Wheel of Time so yeah, no redeemable qualities whatsoever it's, it's, it's your go-to <laughs> example for everything that it's wrong in, lit in literature and we yeah, yeah, yeah. It is my go-to place. You're right. It is my go-to place. It's just a big pile of stinking sweaty bollocks. It is. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Paramita. Sorry. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, like, like honestly, has like because I think male writers should just go, just admit it. I am bi- biologically challenged. I cannot write decent romance. So go down the grim dark road. Go down the Joe Abercrombie road, and just write. Dirty. But Joe Abercrombie writes good romance. Exactly. Like, I, he I, awesome I, romance. I just. I I I so fundamentally disagree with that. I think the issue is that a lot of men don't read like romances or like take in those stories, so like they don't even think about it. And certainly, you could also make an argument that a lot of authors in general are maybe more introverted. You know, maybe there's some of the people, particularly in the fantasy or sci-fi genres, nerdy genres, have don't have a lot of romantic experience. I may be just like broadly stereotyping here. But like I, you know, I think that there are other things to point to here, not a Hold biological on. flaw in Hold maleness. On. What decent romance has have a crumbie written where where the king marries a lesbian without realizing when everyone else knows? Is that the decent no. romance that is written? Which, which one is it? <laughs> it? Okay, in that story alone, Logan and Pharaoh. In a different story, we have. Uh, Oh, what are their names? Um, uh, Besser Cold, I think, has a good Monster romance. and, and um, Shivers. It's a brilliant love story. Yeah. Well, the brother and sister. Yes. The brother and sister in Besser no. Cold. No. no. no, no, no. Which Shivers? <laughs> My head no, no, no. is going to explode right now. Shivers. Shivers, Shivers and Monster. Yes. That's the romance. And I, yes, it does. Well, I mean, I don't want to drop spoilers. He doesn't write traditional romance, I agree. But even like. Or, or Orso and I think Orso Sabine. has two different love interests. You could argue. Tragic, yeah. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, and it's 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 so disturbing. But I still think that like there is a good romantic story there. Okay, but but hear me out. So I agree with you on the proviso that he's not writing traditional romance. He he's doing he, he's twisting everything on its head. Like Sabine has got romantic relationships, but they are all mostly out of convenience particularly in the age of madness so you know she's got feelings for this guy but she actually ends up marrying the other guy and i don't know it's all got that sort of green dark twist to it it's not a traditional romance boy meets girl they fall in love sort of thing it's all gonna have the the fluid if we're talking about that then then go down back to A Song of Ice and Fire. Jon Snow and Ygritte is commonly referenced as a great romance. I think that Jamie and Brienne is a fantastic romance that we just haven't seen dark finished yet. I mean, we, we can argue whether or not they should or should not be romantic, but they think of each other naked. Like, the, the, it is a common through line. Brienne is explicitly contra- like contrasted with Cersei constantly. Like, theirs is a romantic arc. And if, and if you don't like it, fair enough. But I think that that is a great romance story. But again, you see, I think that's a cheat because if you get any man and any woman together on their own for 12 months, at the end of the time period, they're going to be, you know, yeah, you know, friction. Well, what if they're gay? I mean, they're not in this case, but like. Well, so inevitably, they're going to end up there it's, it's, it's because there's no one else around, I think. I would it, say that there are a lot of men around Brienne. Internal screaming exam. <laughs> My brain is like. Ah! <laughs> I, 
I am not grown up enough for okay. this conversation. Mute my microphone, and then you can all contract in me, which is great. And I just <laughs> I, I, I can't even begin to form, to articulate uh, so many things <laughs> without swearing. I, I, I have a, uh, a short... Uh, no, I, I mean, I don't have much to say about A Song of Ice and Fire or uh, First Love, but uh, like to the point of romance, uh, one of my favorite love stories is, well, it's, it's unrequited love in a sense, but I want to read this uh, short excerpt and then, uh, it's a very short excerpt, and then, uh, I mean, you all can decide whether whether this is uh, whether this is good or not so it goes you are part of my existence part of myself you have been in every line i have ever read since i first came here the rough common boy whose poor heart you wounded even then you have been in every prospect i have ever seen since on the river on the sails of the ship on the marshes in the clouds in the light in the darkness in the wind in the woods in the sea in the streets. You have been the embodiment of every graceful fancy that my mind has ever become acquainted with. The unqualified truth is that when I loved Estella with the love of a man, I loved her simply because I found her irresistible. Once for all, I knew to my sorrow, often and often, if not always, that I loved her against reason, against promise, against peace, against hope, against happiness, against all discouragement that could be. Once for all, I love her nonetheless because I knew it, and it had no more influence in restraining me than if I had devoutly believed her to be human perfection. That's, that's one of my most favorite uh, romances. It's, an, it's unrequited love, but, but it is a romance in fiction. Who, who, it's uh, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Another Pip and Estella. Another That's male Pip. author I just thought who I thought wrote a great romance. Uh, kids books, but Lyra and Will in his Dark Materials, that is the heart of that story. That story <gasps> is their their story. Objection. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Objection. I'm not kidding. Objection. At the age of 12, you do not find your soulmate. I'm sorry. I'm not buying it. You can, your I'm first sorry. love, though, can absolutely be hugely impactful, regardless of the age it happens at. Yeah, yeah, but that cannot be the basis of the world. Ah! No, 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 no. I mean, think about Northern Lights. Think about Subtle Nights. And then think about Amber Spyglass. I was like, what? No. I, I'm not saying that. Okay, so this is a personal thing. I believe that Lyra was the protagonist. I loved her in Northern Light. And then she becomes like the second fiddle to Will. I no! think that by, I mean, I, don't, I think the only book she's second fiddle to Will is The Subtle Knife. I think Amber Spyglass, she's very much still the protagonist. I mean, the whole. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But I mean, Amber Spyglass, no, I, I, I don't buy that. That the, this, I believe, yes, of course, that teenage love can be very powerful very pure but that it can hold that that it can be the fundamental fabric of what holds the world together I, i'm i'm sorry i i don't i, I cannot buy that
I, I just can't. I couldn't buy the Harry Ginny thing. I barely bought the Ron Hermione thing. I, I can't. So you're, I'm what I'm getting from this is to you teenagers, <laughs> love, it's just incompatible. It, I, I can't think of one I have read off the cuff that Will and Lyra was definitely one which was dissonant to me. I, I could not, actually what was dissonant to me was interweaving their love with like themes of Paradise Lost or whatever Pullman was responding to. Like that was taking it a bit too far for me. I mean, these are kids, they're, they're, they're kids. They're very mature. They have undergone a lot, but but they're going through their second awakening. Anyway, we could talk about this forever. We've gotten totally off track. Um, So, bringing us back around, uh, we're going to move on from. uh, I was trying to talk about relationships in general, and we ended up talking about romance. Let's let's talk about yeah yeah. (laughs) I don't want to talk about platonic relationships. Let's talk about hero villain relationships. All right, Mm -hmm. and how those can drive character development. Oh, I and thought I, uh, I wanted to. I thought I would talk a little bit about uh, familial relationships okay. a bit because uh, they don't always get. Um, we do get uh, the father figure and uh, you know the mentor and the mentee, but with the uh, with the female with the mother daughter maybe not so much. One I was just thinking about I really love it is the relationship between Tenar and. Teru or Tehanu in book four of Earthsea. So book four of Earthsea, Tehanu is my favorite because it's this very domestic story. There's a lot going on underneath. And uh, it has all these, again, uh, I mean, it it has a very beautiful relationship between Jed and Tenar. It has a very beautiful, this sort of, uh, again, found family is something I'm a sucker for. So this found family, this mother-daughter relationship between Tenar and Theru, who is the adoptive daughter. And uh, also this very beautiful uh, sort of foster mother, I would say, almost relationship between the village witch Moss and this little girl, Theru, whom she helps in nursing back to health. So uh, that that was something, that is something that is uh, really, uh, really stuck with me. Uh, I was wondering if anybody else can think of some uh, nice, uh, you know, familial relationships, anything, siblings or mother daughter. Uh, another one I really love, uh, I mean, this is a cliche one, but Molly Weasley and Harry. It, it's very dear to me. Robin Hobb. Robin Hobb does fantastic relationships. I think to me, from work. Patience and, and uh, Finn. And Feet That's the lovely one. And Molly and, and her kids. I think Agreed. Robin Hobb. I have not read anyone that does character work better than Robin Hood. You, you are, you are preaching in the choir here. That's what <laughs> made her my favorite author was her characters' relationships. They just spoke to me so profound. Every single one, you know, even the ones that are just like horrible and they hate each other. Like there's something very human and real in the way that they interact and they feel about each other. And yeah, the, the family relationship, certainly a lot of them are unusual, you know, you could even pull back and be like, they're kind of soap opera-y, but like, it's very, very well done. And particularly in Life Ship Traders, which to me, 
as a as a as a trilogy taken away, taken out of the context of Elderlings, that is a wonderful, amazing trilogy to read on its own. You've got the three generations, you've got the grandma, the daughter, and the granddaughter, and the, you know, the best family thing, it, yeah, it, I, I just go, I would run out of, you know, adjectives to qualify how good Robin Hood does a character work. Thousand percent agreed. Um, uh, Steve, I wanted to uh, just get your thoughts on this quickly. Uh, on a series we've both read, and I guess other people might have read also on the panel, but I'm not sure. Uh, the Dandelion Dynasty, the relation, the friendship between Jia and Soto, that was rather, uh, that stayed with me quite a bit. Yeah, I agree a lot. What um, do you think? A, a great series, by the way, and great characters and uh, development. But I'm, I am curious. And I hate to, <laughs> want to bring it around back to the romance thing, but I'm curious because Parmiti mentioned that the, t- and I haven't read a Great ex- Great Expectations. Sorry to say, I. I know it's a sin or whatever, but um, I am curious because it, so for a twelve-year-old <laughs> to think they or to either be convinced they met their soulmate or not, wouldn't that be their world at twelve years old? Though, or am I missing context with? Because I'm, f- yeah. So as a twelve, no, you're absolutely right. Y- it would you, be their you could world. Meet your, but I, so um, you could meet your soulmate when you're when you're twelve and not and not end up with them later. You could just be that person meant. Uh, had significance to you, but I do wonder if it's a if it's a cultural thing. If there's differences in culture that we that we that we celebrate romance, and, and wonder if cultures see that differently. So that, I wonder everyone's very much on that. Yeah. yes, very much yes. I I very much agree. Yes, I, this I, I is think true. At some point, we are uh, we had we were talking about romance and uh, love and lust and attraction uh, all in one in one package and that, that those are very different relationships very um, different emotions and um, yeah you, you 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 can be attracted to someone to feel lust lust after someone and have no interest in being romantically involved though or you can love someone just platonically at a distance, just as a fantasy. And the moment, if it ever comes true, then it falls apart. Many stories like that. I think yeah, it's completely different things. And you were getting all mixed up. One of the things that I want to talk about is going back to family relationships. I have found, and, and maybe I am totally off base here but when familial type relationships are explored it's often found family particularly in fantasy and sci-fi and horror even you know I, you have your family sagas like live ship traders you know i think robin hobb is actually a writer in general who writes about family of all types but i i feel like so often you see the sort of the the, the logan you know, the like gruff older guy with some kid, right? And the kid is usually not theirs uh, biologically. And this is not like against, you know, adoption or anything like that. But I think it's interesting that you so often in these sort of larger scale stories seem to not have a huge focus on those actual like family dynamics, Uh, whether they're healthy or unhealthy or, or complex as so many are. 
you know, it seems to me like there's almost this trend towards, you know, like orphans, for example. I think that's probably the, the most obvious one, right? Where like so many heroes are orphans. Their parents aren't even in the picture, right? Or how many heroes even have siblings? You know, as someone who has three siblings, it has always felt so strange to me that like very few, you know, sort of classical heroes don't have siblings. Uh, especially because I think, you know, it's not an uncommon experience. Like, it's not like it's a rare thing to have siblings. And so I'm just curious, you know, if you guys have any thoughts about that in general, one way or another. Oh, you don't want to hear my thoughts about the orphans. Um, siblings? <laughs> yeah, it, I have no opinion there. I have no siblings, and it is one of the hardest things for me to write. Um siblings my my latest book I, I focused a lot in uh, in brother sister and it was hard for me because i had no idea literally no idea and most of my friends they are also uh they, they also don't have siblings so i didn't have much to um you know because to ask those little details so yeah no opinion there sorry but it, it is true, and I don't know why. Maybe just so they don't share the the spotlight. It would be just a, another plot factor, another plot point there to uh, to have to deal with. When they have siblings, they're usually, you know, subservient to them or the enemy. You know, at the end we find out that they were brother and sister. Oh, yeah, I I, <laughs> I don't know why. Jose, you look like you were going to say something. Yeah, I think um, it's the thing about it, there's nothing heroic about being brought up in a stable household, isn't it? Like the the hero overcomes difficulty, and if you're brought up in a stable, loving household with two parents and siblings, you know where is your challenge? Where is your where is your um, strife, isn't it? That's why Luke Skywalker has to lose his uncle and aunt to, you know, to finally set him off on this journey that they have been holding him back from. Um, maybe that's why Frodo is, you know, he's, he's an orphan, well, an orphan, you know, his parents are gone. I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a hero that hasn't undergone you know, you were talking about comics before, Spider-Man, Superman, you know, super, you know, Superman, his parents are not really his parents, and Spider-Man, again, lost Uncle Ben, and, you know, it, it's just, I think it's difficult to justify struggle and strife if you come from a stable background, you know, that's when you become a bank teller or, or something like that, you know, it's, it's just not material for greatness. Um, I, I, I agree and disagree. I certainly agree that it is harder in some ways, you know, like being an orphan, for example, is kind of the archetype, right, is an easy way to immediately make the audience kind of sympathize and understand the character struggles, right? You know, Harry living under, you know, the stairs, right? Uh, Harry Potter. But I think that simplifies family dynamics, needlessly i think you can have an overall sort of stable dynamic but still have very complex you know 
um, at times even adversarial relationships, you know? I mean, I, I think of like how so many of the meanest things that uh, I have either said or had said to me were said by family members who, because they know where to hit you where it hurts because they know you so well. And, and, and these are people I like love and have healthy relationships with overall, but just like, you know, in a fit of like anger or something, or, you know, like making a joke that they don't realize is going to hit really hard. Um, and similarly, I think, you know, the, the drama doesn't have to come per se from the lack of parents or whatever, you know, you could have parents and then, I mean, like Superman in some stories, you know, his, his, the family who raised him, his parents, are around and are alive and like he still has stories and stuff and I guess admittedly they don't feature because it's not very dramatic so I guess you, you have a point there um, I certainly agree that struggle is so much the basis of particularly these heroic narratives that I think the problem is that I think we're all thinking in the realm of fantasy literature and if you have to set someone off on a quest or a journey you're not just going to abandon your stable household to go on a journey. You, you need that, you know. So I can't Definitely believe true. I'm about to say something good about the Wheel of Time. But the reason why Matt, Rand and Pering and Egwene all go off on the journey is because the village gets attacked. They came from a small village, a stable community where everyone helps each other. And the only reason they have to go away is because they get attacked by the Trollocs. That world comes crumbling down and then off they go. You need that. You, otherwise fantasy doesn't work you can have epic fantasy staying at home milking cows with your mom and dad it, it, it doesn't work <laughs> to be fair none of their family members die though you know they're, they're all still around and actually come back later on and have several of them have stories but I, I'm, I agree with you right that like you need something to kick off the journey Steve, Paramita, thoughts? Yeah. Um, um, I was going to say, I, I was thinking of some current, uh, well, not current, but yeah, ongoing or recently completed epic fantasies that have dealt around family. Uh, uh, so before I think anything, one of the best examples of like messed up families is Lannisters and another one is Greyjoys. Dear me, <laughs> God help these two. Like, Even what more is happening? Targaryens? With you people. I think, I think anyway. Have to scale down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> point taken, point taken. He definitely loves but, his message. I mean, the, yeah, the, I, I, it, it's just baffling. Like, the Greyjoys in particular are just, they're just appalling to me. Anyway, um, but one was the Randallion dynasty, which, uh, uh, I think, it, I mean, it's in the name, actually, and it is truly a, a family saga in a, in an epic fantasy setting and the transference of power. And I, I really think that Ken Liu, with that one, he, he it was very, very thematically apt in how he concluded it. The other one I was thinking about, which is still ongoing, but it does have very important a role of family, uh, is Stormlight Archive. So Kaladin and his family, very important. Shalan and her family, very important. Yeah, Dalinar, sure. Navani, uh, Elhokar, uh, Jasna, all of them uh, are very, very important to the narrative. So I think uh, maybe people are 
doing it, but we perhaps don't think of it in the archetypal family saga way as we would like. Let's. I'm trying to think of uh, examples outside fantasy. Like, let's say, 100 years of solitude is generations of a family, and that is like deep perfect. It is. Uh, it, it, I mean, it almost gets a meme at some point. Like when the first first time someone is reading it, especially unfamiliar with. the name is like which one is this and all of them have the same name and it's like is this the first or the second or the fourth but um in fantasy i think it is possible it's interesting like you make them messed up as i said like uh, martin does or you deal with them thematically like the next generation comes in they have their own ideas in dandelion dynasty for example even in stormlight to some extent yeah so I was going to ask Steve uh, something about uh, which I know is a very series very dear to him, and because we were talking about familial relationships, so it's a kind of family but a very messed up family. So Zarius and Istria and Confer is uh, a kind of yeah, family, I can see that. <laughs> but <laughs> it's very Lannister-esque kind of. I, well, yeah, I think it's maybe it's even more messed up than the Lannisters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that they have like some Greyjoy vibes. They have some vibes, yeah, they have vibes for sure. Uh yeah. Definitely have some messed up vibes. But uh Susanna, I was curious, how did you how did you write your familial relationships in your book not having the siblings, not having your own experiences? How did you how did you um kind of learn about them to feel comfortable writing about them? I made up most of it, like I do everything else, uh, just based on <laughs> on other books, on just common sense, uh, basically, you know. Uh, yeah, pretty much <laughs> on other fiction, on on the little bit that I know about life, and yeah, try to fit. Hmm. You you can definitely write good siblings, uh, you know, even without having them. I mean, again, George Martin. As far as I know, he doesn't have any siblings, oh, right. and he certainly is someone who does maybe not always write the most traditional sibling relationships, but, you know, he, he certainly writes important sibling relationships, and I think the Starks are a great example, although at the same time, I, I think circling back to the idea that, you know, maybe they're not central to the story, Stormlight, I do think, is a good, good example, right, of family relationships driving the story, um, even from the heroic perspective. But oftentimes I feel like the kind of classical heroes, like the Starks, for example, in The Song of Ice and Fire, um, and, you know, I mean, going back, certainly where you see this less and less often seems to be the kind of older, um, what we now view as like archetypal hero stories, whether it be Star Wars or, you know, superheroes or like Lord of the Rings or what have you, where they don't feature as prominently, you know, a lot of the, the books written ripping off Lord of the Rings um you could even talk about wheel of time you know and in, in that regard that like where the family relationships don't feature prominently in the heroic characters and it seems to be something almost set for like families are for side characters and like villains you know unless it's like you know Susanna mentioned where you know you have this secret sibling and you didn't even know right and usually they're a half sibling or you know your your dad is secretly the bad guy you know something like that but certainly not exploring anything that remotely resembles a traditional, even if maybe toxic or messed up 
family dynamic. It, it just seems like the heroes, which I think it, it gets back to what Jose was saying, is it's it's a lot harder. And it certainly, you know, if you're going to spur someone onto an adventure, it's it's hard to keep them around if they're, you know, they have a whole family, they have a whole life mm. um, expecting them, you know, that needs them around. Although, again, I think that there there are interesting dynamics to explore there, not only in terms of the relationships themselves, but like, an individual's concern and duty to family members, you know, like, I, I mean, that's a huge thing in, in cultures around the world where, um, you know, people stick around, people support their family members, you know, when they're ill, uh, any number of things like that, where it just doesn't seem to have, you know, no one's taking their sick parents on their heroic adventure. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's interesting that like people just don't, at least in Western fiction, I feel like, don't seem to want to explore that in regards to the, the classic heroes, you know, they're more traditional heroes, even when they're in a more morally gray story, like A Song of Ice and Fire. The cows need to be milked. Do we, do we not, do we not give villains families because it would humanize them too much, traditionally? That's, I think that's, that's probably a very true. good point. I, I, which is why I love villains that have families. And like, for example, my mm -hmm. book series, every single one of them has families and it's almost like one of the main humanizing factors. Hmm. Cause I think it, you're totally right, Steve. It adds so much depth to the, to, you know, even the most atrocious people is like, if they genuinely care about, you know, their child, their spouse, their, you know, parents, whoever. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So just really quickly and then i'll say i know you're dying just uh, just want, no, 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 no no i just wanted no, to no, just no. wanted to ask one more just pose one more question to everyone is so is that why the characters in a song of ice and fire are so beloved because they do have families and because they we do sympathize with maybe not them but their family members does that make the characters not likable but does that make us invest in characters we normally would root to die horribly that we can see the impact it would have on the people around them. And that, that makes them more uh, interesting to us or more relatable. Just throwing that it out there. That's uh, interesting. They all have families and it's all about the families. Um, they all have that in common. They, they fight for their house, for their family, for their legacy. Uh, and I've never thought about it like that. And how, of course, it, it makes them a lot more complex with that element um, and because all of them are in that situation even even Danny to some degree yeah yeah I think she's kind of the wild card she she lost her family twice three times over pretty much um, <laughs> interesting yeah that's a very good point clever I think um, Steve th th that goes back to your point and um, I was listening to a three-hour podcast conversation with a very famous author here in Spain, who um, he actually was a war reporter before becoming a writer. And, you know, he was in the Bosnia war, he was in the Eritrea war and stuff like that. And all his characters, he writes fiction, he doesn't write fantasy, but they're all sort of very grim dark. And then listening to the podcast, it's like, of course, all his characters are great because he's gone through so many wars and he's reported on so many atrocities but he would say that you know because that's human nature he's seen people you know be you know family men 
in the morning and then pillaging and raping a village in the evening. He's seen people be the best and the worst that human nature can be capable of in the space of one day. So, you know, he says everything is grey. You know, and that's why all his characters are grey, because he's gone through so many wars that he's seen, you know, I'm just repeating myself, the best and worst of human nature. And then if you've got like a supposedly quintessentially evil guy, but he's got a family and he's raising kids or he's, you know, worried or caring about his partner, that puts people's minds straight away into contradiction mode. I'm supposed to hate this guy. Now you're presenting me with this idyllic or sort of like, am I meant to hate him or am I meant to like him? And, and I think maybe that's where the appeal of Green Dark to you comes from, is, is you know, this duality of human nature of being able of doing good and bad things. Um, and, and I think maybe if you're trying to portray, if your intent is to portray someone as intrinsically evil, you kind of show that character in moments of humanity because it would defeat the purpose. Yeah, it definitely speaks to the human condition, you know, that you can have, I mean, in, in the mundanity of evil, right? And that someone can be, you know, I'm just following orders, right? And, you know, they can be a family man and then they can go commit an atrocity. Um, and just like given the right circumstances, you know, people can be pushed over the edge. You know, I, I don't know that the way someone would be evil would be, I don't think all people are evil in the same ways. You know, I think that's sometimes uh, a way that narratives get maybe, you know, if, if whitewashed is a term, then blackwashed. I, I don't know where like people try to paint it where like all human beings are sort of all the same type of you know I mean we're all the same species but like I think individuals you know maybe some people are you know much more naturally like liars for example or some people you know are more violent some people are more you know what have you and I I think I, I guess I'm veering off here I don't even know why I got uh, we we're just talking about human nature I guess but that's something that I look for certainly in characters getting you know back to kind of the uber subject that and the idea you know again that there are different people with different you know sort of backgrounds and uh traits personalities and you know different people commit more naturally maybe different types of evil different acts of evil uh different acts of good you know i, I think it is interesting to see the big horrible you know supervillain have a family and be a family man and like care about people because it, it does create that contrast and it creates that paradox. And uh, just seeing the kind of the range of behaviors, I think is something that uh, adds a lot of color and depth to the story. And, you know, getting back to what you were asking, Steve, I definitely think you're right that making it so family based, A Song of Ice and Fire, adds a lot of humanity to the characters, you know, uh, even the worst among them, even when they're maybe acting just out of their own self-interest if it impacts their family members you know it instantly makes it that much more relatable i think because one way or another you know we all have families whether we're adopted whether you know we have no siblings whether we were raised with our cousins or not you know everyone has their own version of family and i i think that makes 
you know, when we see the characters interact or, or act based off their families, it certainly humanizes them for good or ill, you know? Just going to say the, the, the cliche that uh, uh, the, the villain was, is the hero uh, of their story. You know, a good, the trick is to let the reader or the audience understand why um, you're supposed to think he's the villain, but easy. Or she, or, you know, just going default for him. But yeah, a well written villain, you should be able to empathize to at some point play devil's advocate and go like, you know what, what would I do? You know, I love that. You gonna say something, Parmita? Uh, I was gonna say, uh, for me, actually, the answer to Steve's question is the uh, opposite. For me, uh, I won't say the characters are beloved, though some are, but uh, what makes it interesting is, I think, uh, I mean, you have these clans which are fighting for this prize throne, but even within the families, uh, I mean, the entire concept of family is uh, so so tragic in a way that uh, they have these titles. They have they are Lannisters and Baratheons and Greyjoys, but what does the title mean uh, apart from uh, you know infighting even within themselves, uh, even when they uh, interact among one another they they're always thinking of there's always some agenda there's always something most most of the families whether it is you think about the tallies whether you think about the baratheons you think about the greyjoys and even the the one family which had a chance which is sort of what carl was saying the archetypal heroes they are separated by circumstance but even among them there were fractures for example of course it's very natural at that age but Arya sansa were um, the it was uh, typical sibling rivalry, but anyway, now they are all uh, gone or in different different parts of the world, and I think it's a very fragmented sense of what family means, and uh, I think what makes Game of I mean a Song of Ice and Fire sorry more interesting for me is that. Like Martin to me is al is almost saying that look all you humans you're like busy with all this pettiness both within the family construct and also you know the war of the factions while this external threat is looming large and everybody is just like totally not bothered about it. I mean I'm not saying they're not bothered but they are not giving it its due importance. So I, I, because I think the series is called A Song of Ice and Fire and the show was called Game of Thrones. And yes, Game of Thrones is a very important part of the narrative, but my belief is that ultimately we have to go back to ice and fire somehow. And this pettiness of human beings is going to get some pushback from nature. That That's what makes it uh, interesting to me personally as a reader. It's all pointless. They are all having their skirmishes, killing each other, and we we know just how pointless it is. Yeah, that is a trend. Right, highlighting the yeah the futility exactly, and yeah, pettiness is the right word, absolutely. And, and to give credit where credit is due, 
George didn't come up with that concept, right? That was Tad Williams originally. He, he pulled that straight from Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. Uh, the, the whole idea of the old, you know, threat yeah. coming out of this existential threat coming out of the North and the political squabbles getting in the way yeah. and these uh, confused, uh, difficult family dynamics, you know, distracting people from what the real issue is, you know, the, the, the literal, like, potential end uh, or genocide or even just enslavement of humanity and it definitely it, it, it is that dramatic irony you know I, I think that makes it so compelling mm-hmm. who said nihilism um, was boring <laughs> got, so on, on that no no on that note I've got a question um, so I was thinking about it in preparation for tonight so a lot of character work out there kind of everything you know the, the hero's journey and you know there's, there's only five main plot threads and you know a lot of books of a history it's just the same story told again and again and again in a different setting so you've got the Jungian archetypes so to what I see what you're doing there I see what you're doing there so to what degree <laughs> does Grimdark flip the script on those young young archetypes or does it not like like i don't know i'm I'm putting the question out there hopefully you're much better rep people than i am and you can shed some light if you're talking about young specifically they already have shadow archetypes so they you you could say that it's just playing different archetypes um you know the whole idea of grimdark and i think particularly in sort of the marketing sense of like when someone's writing a grimdark story they're often intentionally you know the barbarian is like an insane rapist or something you know it's like it's kind of the they they are their own archetypes absolutely i just want to hear from my neighbor (laughs) up here suzanne what what, what are your thoughts uh my thoughts on grimdark i think we uh, i what is now called commonly called grimdark it's uh, it's uh, it's everyone is using the word to advertise their work uh, you know the but as long as it has a little bit of gore and a bad character and you know it, it, there's there's so many grimdark i'm putting in quotes books out there that are not grimdark uh, you know you can have a, a dark book or a book with many dark uh, themes and scenes and doesn't make it grimdark or you can have many grim scenes in the book so doesn't make it grimdark people are, are just throwing the word around uh, grimdark is about nihilism it's it's it's, it's about uh, yeah like you're saying before humans um, at their worst you know when when they are pushed to the break in, in in uh, in circumstances in in this this world that does not reward um, any good deed or or doesn't present any good options, it's always between you know what the lesser of two evils, and there's always conflict, always uh, you know it it's it's a lot more psychological or um, for me anyway you know just just because you're going to add monsters and killings and and uh you know just people being awful to each other that's not cream dark that's, that's just god it, it's like the the 
we were talking about horror the other day. Uh, when the, it's, it's like the <clears throat> yeah torture porn. You know, it's in book form. You no, know, it, it it doesn't I, work for me. I find myself. Yeah, I find myself agreeing with you, and, and, and Susanna, and I, I. That's generally how I felt, and grimdark is a term certainly that I've always struggled with. I, God, we've feared completely off topic, but while we're talking about it, uh, it's it's certainly something. I mean, we could probably have a whole episode, right, about grimdark, you know, as a subgenre and what it means and how everyone defines grimdark. Because I do feel like grimdark is in the eye of the beholder, right? You know, everyone kind of has their own definition. To me, I definitely also associate it with nihilism. Um, and, you know, even something that is more existentialist, like A Song of Ice and Fire, I wouldn't consider grimdark. And just like for anyone who doesn't know, like the difference between like nihilism and existentialism is existentialism is essentially about finding your own meaning in a universe without meaning, without direction. Right. And nihilism is basically saying everything sucks. Nothing has meaning. The world is cruel and you die. Yeah, um, exactly. And, you, you know, first law, for example, I do think is nihilistic and I yes. love those books. I, I'm not normally a fan of nihilism, but like those books at the end of the day are like everyone sucks. The, you know, there is no happy ending. The world continues to suck and only, you know, you may break a dynasty you may break a system but the new thing that's going to replace it is just going to be as bad and you know as opposed to a song of ice and fire which i think going talking about jamie lannister and the way you kind of represent philosophies and you know what why jose was talking about you know him as a, a redemptive character is that it really is sort of or susanna's like this self-discovery is like is about him finding his ideals again right and deciding that despite yeah all of these oaths are convoluted and they contradict one another and people will hate you even when you do the right thing. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. You know, I, I really don't think the reader is meant to take his experience with the Mad King and be like, you know, I, I actually think he should have just stood by while the Mad King nuked all of King's Landing, right? Like, no, that's a heroic act. And I think that series, while certainly showing a lot of the, the worst that humanity can be is also about ultimately finding heroism within that darkness and standing up and, you know, getting back to the ice and fire thing, right? Ultimately, I think, I don't think the White Walker is going to come down and kill everyone, you know? I just, if the show is anything to go by, you know, that's definitely not going to happen and they're not even going to get very far. Uh, so it's, I, I I don't know. Grimdark is certainly a label that, that I struggle with because I do think it's thrown around a lot and I don't necessarily find it always the most accurate or intuitive term to describe a story. Is that nihilism or, stoic or stoicism? What? Because it sounds kind of stoic to say that there's no hope. Uh, In a sense? like it, So... No, 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 no. I'll, I'll yeah, see what sorry. you mean. Let, let's put it this way. So, in a in a in a, in the grim dark novel, you would have a lot of stoic characters. Mm -hmm. Right that way. And that one is not necessarily, but yeah. Then. Uh, I think, uh, like Steve, I only know one example because we were taught this. So, like mm -hmm. Brutus and Julius Caesar is supposed to be stoic. That means that whether something good happens or whether something bad happens, 
he will be in equilibrium his uh, rationality is independent of what uh, events that might cause emotional turmoil within him are going on so that is stoicism and nihilism i think for me is uh, what karl said that uh, it is um, ceasing to care because nothing matters and stoicism is i care means I, it, it is uh, like you know we have in uh, gita they say that you do your work but don't expect results yep. so i will do my work but the result is not in my hand and i am okay with that so that i think is stoicism and nihilism is do work don't do work result is same blah 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 like it, it, it's a more, it's a i think it's a more bleaker perspective whereas stoicism is uh, leaning towards a more philosophical and at times even a more spiritual perspective cuz i've read marcus aurelius meditations which is meant to be the sort of stoicism and mm. in, in there what what he's trying to say is, is is you know that sort of um uh you know give me the uh, the strength to change the things i can change and give me the you know patience to accept the things i cannot change and the wisdom to tell them apart isn't it so with the stoicism there's still hope like you can still change the things that you can change and you know you should strive to do that mm-hmm. whereas in a nihilistic view it's like don't even try mate like that you know the, the systems are out there to crush you and and you know every hopeful person this is going to get smacked down so i think they're not quite the same thing uh, and i think um in in the fir- you know the first law is grim dark mm. because when the characters try to change things you know uh logan and who's the other barbarian in the he's more prominent shivers the, shivers cold shivers is this idealistic character that you know wants to see the big world out there and and be a good person and the world just beats him down every time he tries um so i think from a sort of philosophical standpoint the first law is grim dark whereas just because nasty things happen um that doesn't make it a grim dark book you know in realm of the elderlings a lot of nasty things happen to the characters but no one considers it grim dark you know you got characters getting raped you got all sorts of you know nasty shit going on but it's not grim dark um so we're talking stoic characters in narcissi- in nihilistic worlds. I suppose like Glotka would uh, be a stoic character. Exactly. So he accepts his nature as the, right. the cripple, but he, 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 he works his way around the world and he can change. He tries to change for, for self-serving reasons, but he does and i think in a way sabine is similar she accepts the world for what it is and she just maneuvers her way around it um because if it was what is interesting oh sorry oh no just just if if because if it was just nihilistic characters in a nice nihilistic world nothing would happen (laughs) there would be no story you need the story it'll just be a bunch of people drinking in a bar or an inn as the case may be and um just moaning about life isn't it 
I, I think you could still have, I mean, I guess it depends how you're defining it, but a character could be nihilistic and still act. Like, I, I think they would just ultimately think that there's no point and they're just doing whatever the, the hell they want to, you know? And it's not about any sort of ideals. It's not about trying to improve anything. It's just they're doing it because they want to. Um, and, you know, maybe even just like giving in to like base animal urges. The first law is is interesting with the context of like the larger world and how the story goes beyond. Like it's never happy, but you know uh, there are a couple of the standalones where I feel like actually I think all the standalones in some ways they, they don't all have happy endings per se, but they don't all end without characters you know changing for the better or even finding some sort of little piece. Um, like I, I won't spoil it, but like there's a character in the heroes, for example, that whole book is basically about how war is shit and it's the worst thing and it's pointless and it's petty and you know, it, it's run by the worst people just trying to pursue their own selfish ends. But there is one character who starts out thinking, you know, war is this amazing thing where I'm going to make myself famous and glorious and, you know, make my name. And he ends the book being like, you know, I'm just going to go live on a farm. I'm going to live a simple life. And it'll be okay. And it's almost this cathartic, you know, sort of happy ending, weirdly, for the character. Or, you know, even talking about a character like Glockta, who, without getting into spoilers, but he does rise up the world. And he's, I think he, in some ways, has a nihilistic view of the world at large. But he also cares about people still. Like, it's, he, he talks about how terrible the world is, but, like, he loves Sabine, for example. You know, like he genuinely cares about his daughter. Um, he genuinely cares about, you know, a number of individuals. Uh, he's not a very good father. He's not a very good, you know, person. But I, it, it is interesting kind of, I don't know if it's Joe Abercrombie softening in some ways or uh, just like further fleshing out kind of the, the world and, you know, his potential point of view within that world, at least. Um, but the, there is, a, I think, potentially more complexity there, too. And I think potentially more complexity to, to explore with nihilism, right? Like, I, I don't think talking no, but, about it, if, if nihilism defines grimdark, you know, that it's necessarily showing nothing but bleakness, um, even though certainly a lot of the times people are just like, it's the most flaccid, underdeveloped, you know, thematic point a lot of times when people are trying to be grimdark. But Joe Abercrombie is admittedly not most writers. No, but, but, but I think the two things are not uh, contradictory. Like, Glotka can be cynical and bitter about the world, but it doesn't mean he cannot love his daughter. You know, um, I, I, I can think that the world is unfair and unjust, I still love my kids and I still want the best for them. And suppose what I'm trying to do is help them or teach them how to navigate this world where their odds are stacked against them. It, it, it you know, I, I think it's, it's a different thing there. Definitely. And, and actually talking about one stoicism and two kind of existentialism too. I actually think Shiver's arc is ultimately much more hopeful than Logan Ninefingers. And arguably Logan Ninefingers, his story go, uh, beyond the original trilogy, uh, which is definitely very bleak. Uh, and, and I actually think it's probably the bleakest the story has been. Um, that Shivers, he has a very dark arc, but his story doesn't end 
at his story's like his arc's low point. Uh, and I, I again, I don't want to get into spoilers for anyone who's listening and hasn't read all the first law books, but he does more and he actually does good things. And I don't think his story ends in a way where it's like, at least where it is right now. Um, but maybe he's alive, maybe he's dead. I don't know. Uh, but that you know, it, it's not ultimately just like you can't change for the better. I don't know. I guess that's what I'm saying is like Abercrombie's works have become more complex i think in some ways thematically as he's gone on like he's let characters actually change in ways he didn't previously um so while, while we're we're talking about philosophy and how it like represents itself in the characters and the stories and so you know wrapping up here i'm curious for you as writers as readers you know what you look for what how you try to implement you know characters philosophies and potentially you know larger ideas in general right like we have been reading the darkness that comes before and i know it's big on uh, nietzschean philosophy and that that heavily influences the work and you know how do you think it should be implemented you know what what do you try to do what do you look for what do you enjoy to see in the characters specifically and how they live out their philosophies I'm going to throw it at you, Susanna. Oh, I, I was hoping anyone go first. Uh, yes, well, I, I, I do like a good dose of philosophy uh, in my books. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of the things that I like the most about the, the Sun Eater series. The, just the background, the, the philosophical and literary background in, in, in those books. It, it, it's something else. Um, yeah, but do do I have a favorite philosophy? No, it, it has to fit the world or the character. Um, I don't even know how to articulate the answer. Does anyone else want to go first while I organize my thoughts? <laughs> okay, I'll go on. Go on. Uh, no, for me, to go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I, mine is short. Uh, philosophy, especially if it's like exposit expository passages, it usually bores me and I zone out. Don't read my uh, book then. Sometimes some writers do make it work, but <laughs> general. <laughs> oh no. no, no, but I really like Sanita, but it depends on the execution. But uh, but generally, uh, yeah, like in Dune. That there is a, an installment, uh, God Emperor of Dune, where I, I, I was bored out of my mind. So uh, I'm not, not, not a huge fan, and I don't find it uh, the most engaging as a reader. Some people can do it very well, like Dostoevsky, but generally I, it's a struggle. Jose, what were you going to say? Uh, I think it depends on how it's done. I mean, famously, you know, Ayn Rand's books, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, are very heavy on her selfish, selfish objectivism. But I really enjoyed those books. And I'm someone that doesn't really mind about an author telling me their philosophy. Like, I might like her or not like her. I might agree or disagree. I, I don't mind it. But so like the way it's done in, like, like I said, in Ayn Rand's case, it's done fairly subtly through the actions and the thoughts of her characters and, and I'm, I'm okay with that uh, it, so you think it's like case, it's a very good example it, it, yeah. it's about the actions really 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, the characters act a certain way. And obviously, she's sort of preaching because they end up coming, you know, top on, on, on those books. Um, and she's got an agenda there. Mm. But I think it's very well executed. Uh, and in a way, I want to say it's not preachy. It's just like she's presenting the fa the story or the characters or the facts, whatever you want to call it. And it works well. Um, but again, I think in fantasy, it's, it's a lot more esoterical, perhaps. It's not so applicable to your day-to-day -day life. It has to be more they psychological. Yeah, esoteric is a good word. You know, and they're, they're very... I think fantasy a lot of times tries to tackle, like, very big ideas. I mean, not that, like, other perhaps more grounded works don't, but, like, I'm like to, you know, something as broad as nihilism, right, for example, or existentialism or something, you know, just, like, basic, you know, deeply about fundamental human nature for example and, and i and i do agree that it, it sometimes isn't always as applicable in or immediately relatable in day-to-day -day life as someone who loves god emperor i'll admit i love when characters just start wax again like navel gazing waxing poetic i'm here for it i mean I, I, there's ways to do it better than others like if they're saying the most like you know bland you know like fourth grade sort of ideas then yeah like that's not gonna interest me but if they're proposing ideas that, you know, maybe highlight something I haven't thought of before. Um, I didn't know, for example, that Sunny Deer, I've never heard someone talk about it as a philosophical work. I had no idea. And that makes me way more interested in reading it. I was already curious because I've heard good things. But everyone focuses on it as being like, at least what I've seen online, like just in my little bubble, um, as being like, you know, this big, epic, grand story about this really like badass character. And so I love hearing that it has this philosophical background or foundation you know certainly that there's more it's trying to say um, that, that makes me much more inclined to check it out um, and I'm I guess for me personally what beyond just the ideas themselves what makes philosophy and kind of like trying to inject philosophy and, and large ideas into a story what makes it work is if it has true bearing on the conflict and matters to the characters and what they're going through right like if this character is grappling with like the nature of heroism and they are actively, you know, you know, this complex, more Jamie Lannister, for example, we'll just keep referencing Jamie Lannister, right? Where he's like trying to grapple with the idea of like chivalry and knighthood and heroism and duty. Um, you know, Jon Snow, love is the death of duty, right? Like it, trying to struggle to make sense of their own worldview as they're actively pursuing things, I think is what often makes the uh, philosophizing more potent and uh, more meaningful is because it is meaningful to the characters and they are actively acting on the things they're talking about or thinking about and not just, you know, standing around as sort of the stereotype of like, you know, the literary fiction of like the college professor who like sleeps with, you know, un undergrads and, just like thinks about how sad they are like that doesn't interest me um and it, of course there's a very broad stereotype here right but like you know it's it's not it's about the actions put into it right and uh, the, the the ideas they're thinking about being really meaningful to the story that they're living through 
if, if I may, because we're talking about uh, the Sun Eater series, and I have a passage from the Empire of Silence, so... Uh, Please. Inspired by Paramita, and we're talking about philosophy, and it, this was the saying that... Uh, this was the moment that I was hooked into the book, and anyone who can write like this or understand this has my attention. So minor spoiler, it's right at the beginning, so just for context, they are in this uh, arena, so it's kind of like um, the Colosseum in Rome, and they are watching these um, prisoners, criminals being pretty much executed in this spectacular uh, way for entertainment of the masses, and he's the lord of that planet, or whatever, and he has to be there to, to show family, and he's there with his brother. Anyway, so um, from here, so beauty, the poet wrote, is truth. Truth, beauty. It was wrong. They are not the same. There was no beauty in that arena, but there was truth. There, while men shouted and died on a killing floor, executed for the diversion of 70,000 spectators, I saw it. Or heard it, rather. Heard it behind the screams and cheers and laughter of the adoring, adoring public as Crispin, this is the brother, stepped onto the field amidst smoke as the dulators and servitors dragged the bodies of the dead slaves towards the lift. A silence, a profound echoing quiet. Not the quiet in the ears, but in the mind. The crowd, for it was a singular being, was shouting to drown out the loud silence in their souls. I heard it, but I did not understand what it was, what it meant. Buttoning my jacket, I turned, crossed to the door, and left the box. I needed air. All at once, I found I could, uh, I could stand to watch the tableau no longer. It was not my world, not a thing I wished to inherit along with the rest. The peasants cheered as I left the box, cheered for Crispin. He was welcome to it. Very philosophical. Beautiful. Nice. That is, that's great writing. All right. I'm hooked. Beautiful. I'm definitely in the next year. Amazing. I'm jumping into that series. Beautiful. Yeah. Totally recommend. All right. We haven't heard from you, Steve, yet. What are your thoughts? On about philosophy and, and, and character work, right? And like representing philosophy through your characters. I don't mind it when it's subtle or when it's, uh, when it's interweaved with the, with the story or when it's, um, when it all works together, but when it's too heavy handed, I, I lose interest and I'm out. Um, it's more impactful for me when it's just subtly done and it's, it's a thing to think about. It's something that you could think about after you're done reading and or watching or listening to, and you have a chance to reflect on it, even though you may not have, your views may not change it, you still have a different perspective. But when it's done, when it's obvious that it's the point of the story is to is to hammer this message to you, then it doesn't work for me. When it's it's just part of the story, then it works much more effectively for me when it's just like, oh, I never thought of it that way, and you think about it. But when it's just like, shove it in down your throat but they're you know then it's i just i like i'm not interested <laughs> not interested at all but that's just me very cool all right does anyone have any uh 
thoughts, you know, as we're wrapping up here about anything we've talked about, characters in general, and, you know, writing great characters? Uh, I, uh, I do want to say two small things. I'll try to be quick. Um, the first one I wanted to say is um, we've mainly been focusing on characters, uh, human characters and human relationships. But uh, I just want to give a shout out to all the non-human characters who've made uh, fiction very, very dear to me, from Treebeard to Hedwig to Kantaka to Night Eyes to Drogon et al. I think that uh, Mother Nature is sort of interconnected with how we view the world and our non-human friends are a very, very big part of that. So whenever I see a very uh, beautiful representation of a non-human character, uh, and especially when it's not anthropomorphized, so it's its own thing, uh, it, it's very, very dear to me. And the other thing that I wanted to say quickly is we have mainly focused on uh, epic fantasy, I would say, uh, in discussing characters today. But uh, one thing that I find very interesting to think about characters, which is more in the domain of science fiction, I guess, is uh, what is a truly alien character? So we talked a little bit about alien psyches and uh, relatability and likability. But how does one write something that is truly alien and yet get the reader to engage with it? So uh, I, I think I, I read a very uh, profound review in Goodreads once. Uh, it was about St Solaris by Stanislaw Lem. And over there, the alien is basically this massive sort of sentient-ish ocean. But, but it's, it's so alien that it's unfathomable. Like, I cannot imagine it. And uh, the reviewer was very uh, on point when she said that uh, usually what we get is anthropomorphized humans. But this is truly alien. So that is something that uh, I find very interesting. It's true that it comes up more in science fiction, but it does occur in fantasy also. For example, the city in Memory Thorathon or the others in um, in A Song of Ice and Fire, where we genuinely don't know what their motivations are. And honestly, I'm pretty sure there are some messed up thingies in Prince of Nothing or the sequel series, at least. I, I have a major suspicion. And so Steve is giving this mysterious grin. So he's neither <laughs> denying nor confirming. But uh, I, I, I do think that uh, like alien characters who are not human, who do not have human motivations, are uh, very interesting to read in fiction as well. Those were my two points. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And it is really hard, right? Uh, I, I actually think, bringing it back around to nihilism, I don't think that's something that often is written well when it is, because I think people are inherently like, I, if I'm going to take a stand, I think I can't imagine a human being can actually be nihilistic. I think on paper they can say they think the world is meaningless, but we're constantly trying to make meaning of our day-to-day -day lives and, you know, the, the experiences we go through. You know, our brains are wired such that we're, we're pattern-seeking creatures, right? And when you're seeking patterns, you're trying to make meaning out of the world, you know? I mean, religion, that's it, it, what it is, right? Regardless of what you believe, 
you know, it, it is this attempt to understand why the universe is the way it is, why I am the way I am, why the people we know are the way they are. Um, and so I think, yeah, it, it is really hard to write something truly alien, you know, that has values that are uh, just impossible for us to understand. And, and I think nihilism is, is one of those things that I, I struggle to see uh, truly human representations. Again, like someone who can maybe espouse the ideas, but like to actually live them, I think it would just be next to impossible. That, that's why also that's shout out to the, the animal companion. The world, the dynamic itself, you know, the, the world doesn't change. It doesn't matter what you do. I agree. Uh, but the characters still need to have that little bit of hope, to have the drive. To, otherwise, there will be no story, there will be no plot. But it is the world where they are. That It's just constant war or conflict or famine or wh whatever it is. You, you can make it a little bit better for a little bit. For, 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 for a while, for someone you love, briefly, and then it goes back being you know, what it always was. I think it, it's more that feeling, being totally in, in that environment, not so much about the character themselves. You can have very optimistic and sunny characters in Grim Dark Worlds, so for example, Orso. You know, it was all good intentions <laughs> and... Uh, and look what happened, it's one of my favorite characters, I, I cried uh, at some point, and Same. then I immediately laughed afterwards with uh, How's the Leg, but uh, I think it's one of the most yes. brilliant moments in fantasy. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you need one that. One of the all-time great. You need that. yeah. you know, that's why that is grimdark. Agreed a thousand percent. Jose, what are your thoughts? I think that Parameter's right, but I would say, even though I'm not loving it, I think in the Sanita series, Rokyo does a good job of portraying the Sielsing at this other. I didn't want to bring it again because I yes. sound like a fangirl, but yeah, it's a very good job. No, but, but it's a very good example of the other that we, like in the series, our main character try he tries to understand them he tries and and this 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 i think we got to the point in book four at the end of book four where he's realized that it is impossible to reach some kind of understanding of mm -hmm. the motivations and it's all gonna end up you know going to hell in a handbasket um but yeah you you're right otherwise in traditional fantasy the orcs and the goblins have all this you know they've just been cut on fodder for the evil lord and they're not really fleshed out i think someone tried to no someone wrote a series called orcs or the orcs series or something like that um but from what i read on the reviews it was just like humans in orcs king like like it wasn't really you know he sort of failed mm. to portray like the orcs from their sort of understanding of the world that thing and in terms of the animal companions that Parameter was mentioning, it's become so cliched that even in the Dungeons and Dragons game, you know, you've got the the character of the um, the warder with the with the wolf, isn't it? Your your animal companion is is there, is is a stereotype. And and the boy and the wolf, you know, it goes back to, you know, God knows. Um, but we've seen it time and time again. Um, Talking about how difficult it is to write alien points of view and alien species, 
Armida, I actually would push back on the idea that the city and I think in memory Sauron Thorn, they're definitely alien. But I think in the more recent books, they get humanized a lot. And I feel like they, they, their culture yeah, I agree. seems very alien to our understanding. But I, I think we find that they end up sh deep down fundamentally sharing many of the same kind of values and instincts as human beings do. And I, and I think it, it, you know, I think that's an intentional choice on Tad Williams' part uh, thematically and just from a, a dramatic perspective. But it, it's really hard, right, to make a, a, you know, a species or, you know, an individual character or being alien and like maintain that without, like, again, it's so, e it's natural to us to try to impose our own understanding, our own like instincts onto some other creature even though, you know, they're fundamentally, I mean, you're talking about aliens, dogs are aliens to us, right? Like cats are aliens to us. Like we live with them. We have symbiotic relationships, but they don't process the world the same way we do. And I think, you know, you're talking about anthropomorphization. God, that's one of those words, tongue twister. Um, that like so often, I love Night Eyes, for example. And I think Night Eyes is a really interestingly written character. But I do think, and, and actually it's a plot point that he kind of gets humanized by his connection with Finn. But that yeah. he doesn't always feel like a wolf to me. Like he feels like a, a very specific type of human in wolf skin. Um, and that it is so hard, mm. especially I think when you apply a voice to something alien, I think you're instantly making it more human. You know, you're, you're instantly creating this connection that wouldn't be there otherwise. So I guess just rambling here, if you make them talk, they're probably going to be just instantly more understandable to us. Hmm. Though with the ants, I think like the ants are definitely not like they are, they are their own thing in, in Lord of the Rings. Like, I think that's one of the very 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 special cases at least to me where you know it's, they are at one with nature i mean it's it's like uh, it's it's a very beautiful chapter as well i can't i i'm i i can't quite articulate why it is that it touches me so much but the tree, i i know some people absolutely hate it they're like tom bombadil and three beard chapters are the worst like what are we doing here but uh, there's something very beautiful about the ants and the song with the lost ants. I do think they feel more. It is this sort of like golden example, right? Where they're, in some ways they're kind of understandable to us, but they're also they just exist in a way that is different. I, I, I do think Tolkien really nailed it there. Uh, on sort mm -hmm. of a similar subject, going off of this, I was just thinking, you know, Stephen Erickson, the author of the Malazan Books of Fallen. Uh, has talked about how he never made Anamander Rake a viewpoint character because he could not imagine writing from the perspective of someone who had lived for untold thousands of years, right? And so if you want to talk about alien perspectives, do you think it's possible to write from the perspective, like to write authentically, whatever that means, from the perspective of a, a being, uh, you know, sort of human or otherwise that has lived far beyond our natural lifespan. And I'm actually going to point to Steve first because we haven't heard from you in a bit. I'm afraid to say too much because I'll ruin things for a certain uh, series. But um, I think it would be, I think I would imagine at that point things would slow down quite a bit. Like the world wouldn't 
things would happen at a very slow pace. The I'm not sure that you'd be surprised by a whole lot. I think you'd be you'd kind of lose lose track of your humanity at some point when you live that long. I don't know that you you kind of stop caring that you see everyone live and die and you remain behind and you're still living and just watch people come and go. Early in the probably become a point where you just kind of lose your mind. But I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's that's my grim dark talking. Doctor Manhattan. <laughs> That's very true. I agree. Susanna, what are your thoughts? Uh, how I do it, I write about gods and immortals of uh, various kinds. Uh, so I uh, try. Well, first I have the excuse that you know they are either gods or androids or you know, something like that. So they they don't have a human brain, a human psyche. That's why the one of the characters doesn't matter. I'm digressing. Uh, so, they're, they're not biologically human, that's one. Second, I rely a lot on the archetypes, because that's what they are, being the gods, they are representations of you know, forces of nature, of, or um, psychological aspects, uh, anyway. And the other, I have them have a connection with someone, um, that it's their anchor throughout the ages so to speak so the uh yeah they've, they've seen everything you know the, some of them they're pretty much in the universe being born so what else you uh, know what what surprises them i have no idea i cannot fathom but you know i i i made them a bit jaded but still around for the sake of someone um it has always had to be that that connection or more than one, someone, or just uh, one one specific character is, is uh, their world, for example. You know their their precious possession. You know, but is that accurate? Is that good? No, I've read so much better. Uh, some people really give it a lot of thought, uh, but it's not that kind of story. But I, it is something that I, I do love to think about. You know. How it would be like if even just a few centuries i would love to oh well don't think it's gonna happen in my lifetime definitely Maybe. agree with that i would love to have the experience just like to because again it, it's we no one has experienced i mean that's so far as we know you know uh no one has experienced that and steve i think something you said that really stood out to me was you know it, it, to paraphrase that their sense of time would change right that you know, we, there's already a lot of talk about, you know, that time is relative, right? I mean, scientifically speaking, this is just true. And I, I agree. I think if you live long enough, your perspectives on events and just day-to-day -day life would be fundamentally different. I mean, you think even just like as an adult, right? Like I'm, I'm 26 years old and I think about, you know, when I was six years old, like the way I perceived time was so different. And then, you know, multiply that by however many times you're just your worldview is going to fundamentally change your day-to-day -day, uh, perspective is going to fundamentally change i do wonder i really like seeing the sort of world weary you know more cynical kind of it, it's an archetype right of like the immortal character who's just like kind of done with it all uh often they're like an alcoholic or something you know they, they have some sort of vice to like deal with their feeling of like nothing matters um 
but I do wonder, you know, it wouldn't, we don't know, I guess, but w I, I have to imagine, and maybe this is just my own perspective on humans, but like, I feel like we're constantly changing and we go through different phases in lives. Like, I feel like that would continue to happen, at least for human immortals, right? I mean, who knows other species, right? That like, you know, 300 years later, you could very well find yourself, you know, wanting to forcibly become a tyrant or something. And then another hundred years later, you're like living out and like handing out food and like being generous and, you know, willingly like giving up everything and not, you know, concerned about your own comfort at all and mm. uh, only concerned about helping other people. You know, I, 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 I this is just speculation, right? But I, I wonder, and I think that's probably what, you know, Steven Erickson, to get back to him, struggled with so much as he's like, I, I don't even know. Like, because he still wrote the character as being sort of alien, as existing outside the other characters. But he, like, didn't want to get in his head because he was like, I can't imagine what his thoughts would be like. You know, what would he think moment at moment? How would he actively think about the people around him? You know, he can express opinions, but the, the individual emotionality he, I guess, struggled with. Um, and, I mean, similarly, I, yeah, I just, like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin with that, right? Like, how would you actually accurately try to portray something so, from its perspective, so alien, right? Because I feel like once we're in the perspective, you know, talking about earlier how I, like, was trying to make the argument that, like, you know, you let something speak and it instantly becomes more relatable in some way, that, like, if you're in their head, we instantly, I feel like, just by the nature of storytelling, understand it better. You know, like H.P. Lovecraft never wrote from Cthulhu's perspective, right? Because that takes away the mystique, right? Like, you, because you would have to do something, like, to just to communicate, you would have to humanize them in some way. My movie that I thought of was a movie that uh, Susanna's talked about on her channel, and we've talked about it. Is Only Lovers Left Alive? Mm hmm. I was thinking. That portrays the, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's very good. Yeah. Uh, another movie recommendation, what's, though. What's it about? vampires <laughs> no nice. no about humanity from the point of view of uh, of a couple of vampires it's it's really clever uh but i was thinking about another another movie that no one knows about as well i don't know if you heard of the man from earth yeah crickets no one knows i i need to do a a little <laughs> recommendation on my channel so it's it's uh, how to tell about without spoiling too much. So hypothetically, you know, it's, it's, it's a very low budget movie. It happens with a very small cast just in one living room. Um, one of the guys is leaving, so everyone's going together to say their goodbyes and they start having this conversation, um, debating if it would be possible for uh, someone to have lived through since the Stone Age. So for as long as like 30, 35,000 years, how would that person be like today? Um, how different or similar? And it's genius. It does derail a little bit towards the end, but uh, the premise, the arguments, uh, it's beautiful. It's just, I love that movie. If you have a chance to find it, uh, I recommend The Man From Earth. Thank you for the recommendation. Mm -hmm. All right, any other last minute thoughts? I know we're over two hours here. 
I think that's been the, uh, like you know I, I sh crazily shouted before, but um, Alan Moore in Watchmen did Doctor Manhattan fairly well, and if you're going to talk about some sort of immortal being or some eternally living character, you have to dehumanize them. Is the only way to get anywhere near what that character may feel like or be like, um, and Doctor Manhattan was that. But I suppose you know he was a totally. You know, he was totally careless about the human condition and human people. And I suppose it's not, but in contraposition to that, in The Sandman, there's a little story about a man that gets granted to live forever, but he never gets jaded. He never gets cynical about the world. And every hundred years, he has a meeting with a lot of dreams about, you know, are you ready to die yet? And every time he's like, no, I'm having a whale of a time. I love life. I love the world. And, you know, they sort of become friends over the centuries. So, you know, again, we just keep circling back to the whole human nature being capable of the best and, and the worst. Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore are definitely two writers who are very interested in that question, right? what immortality and what a, a fundamentally different perspective does to a, a being. Uh, I mean, Alan Moore d did it even earlier than Watchmen in Swamp Thing, right? Uh, he's really great writer. Parmita, any thoughts? <laughs> uh, on anything? On Alan Moore? Up here. Uh, no. Uh I haven't read Watchmen and uh, I couldn't quite get into Sandman, but it could very well be because I was trying to read the well, ebook yeah, on my that's phone. that's a bad idea. So, <laughs> Why would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think everybody, I, when I posted this on the forum for people who are listening, everybody collectively screamed. You, you like, only read Volume this? 1, right? Too. Yeah, it gets better after that. Volume 1 yes. is by far the weakest. Um, so yeah. Also, don't don't. This is a trap. This is a trap for which for which it's... I don't fall for anymore. This is a this is the epic fantasy science fiction trap. It gets better in book two and book three. Everyone Just says this book about one. Sandman, though. I have never met a single person who thinks the first volume. I I'm I'm not doubting it at all, but it's still I a trap. I mean, it is a common. <laughs> it's yes. like the Malazan trap. Nine books in. 12,000 pages later, it'll all make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, yeah. All right. Well, uh, if no one has anything else, Steve, you want to wrap us up? Sure. Uh, we'll go around and then. So, said, tell us where people can find you. Uh, mostly on Jose's Amazing Worlds channel on YouTube. I'm also, nah, forget about Instagram. And then on the page chewing.com forums, I am generally there spouting nonsense. Thank you. And Susanna? Uh, you can find me pretty much everywhere, but I spend most of my time on uh, Twitter or YouTube, my channel, Den of the Weird, or on Twitter, uh, the handle is Chronodendrum. But if, if you Google my name, yeah, you, you will find me, don't worry. And Paramita? Uh, I can be found on the page <laughs> chewing forum. You can find me on a lot of social media at Carl D. Albert. 
um, and on the Patreon forum. Thanks, everyone. It was, it was great. Uh, I think Thanks we can so even much. have a part two and looking forward to the next topic, whatever it may be. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a so. huge topic. You, you need to yeah. divide. So, yeah, it's, it's huge. <laughs> Very big. Yeah, Looking we can, can have a part two. Yeah. Thank you I'm so much for letting me join. This was fun. We, we stayed relatively on topic today. Pretty good. Thank you. I thought we'd veer off eventually, <laughs> but yeah, pretty good. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. <laughs> I love the different viewpoints too. That was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to have a lot to explore that next time. But. Awesome. Hope everyone has a great Friday and has a great weekend. We'll uh, we'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.